You're listening to the Perch Pod from Perch Perspectives. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of the Perch Pod. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm also the founder and chief strategist of Perch Perspectives, which is a human-centric business and political consulting firm. Joining us on the podcast is one of my favorite guests. It's cousin Marco Papich, who is a partner and chief strategist at Clock Tower Group. Note, listeners, that we recorded this on Friday, January the 21st, around 1 p.m. Central. Uh, We discussed Russia and Ukraine at some length and also some things about the Fed. I don't think that will be overtaken by events because it was fairly high level. But just so you know, um, a couple things might have happened in between when we recorded and when you listen to this. Otherwise, as always, check us out at perchperspectives.com. You can write to us at info at perchperspectives.com. Rate the podcast, leave a review, subscribe to it. Uh, and I'm writing a monthly column over at Lycaon. Check it out if that is of interest to you. Otherwise, cheers, stay warm, stay healthy. See you out there. Uh, joining us today is uh, Chief Two-Handed Economist at Past Expiration Date Consultants Incorporated. Marco, it's great to have you back on the, the podcast, cousin. Oh, it's awesome. Cousin Jacob, what's up, man? Uh, listen, before we get started, uh, we actually have a new sponsor for the podcast. Uh, it's podcast is brought to you by Moonshine 4.0. Uh, Moonshine hey. 4.0 is changing the alcoholic beverage world. Using proprietary 5G technology, Moonshine 4.0 uses the fourth industrial revolution and best practices and in artificial intelligence to create a non-GMO, completely organic, and vegetable-based alcoholic beverage aged in artificial hand-woven barrels designed to impart the woke taste of pure alcohol to their cask strength products. Moonshine 4.0 is the perfect beverage to bring to your next party in the metaverse, as each sustainably sourced bamboo bottle comes with a unique non-fungible token and an equivalent meta-growler you can bring to your next big party. For every bottle bought, Moonshine 4.0 will donate one meta-stuffed animal to starving children in Equatorial Guinea. Recycle your bottle and you receive a rebate of four moon coins per purchase, each of which get this, represents 0.0001% of a vote in Moon State, their decentralized autonomous organization. Moonshine 4.0, the next evolution of alcoholic beverages. Please drink responsibly. That is awesome. Not bad, right? (laughs) That was great. You you just hit the zeitgeist. And you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because a lot of the crypto investors will need the moonshine, given that it just dropped your old 40,000 as we record this. So you're just rubbing it in at this point. I am, but careful. This is coming out in probably about two weeks. And for all we know, Bitcoin will literally go to the moon in that time period. I've given up <laughs> trying to predict it. Uh, oh, hold on. I have to have that space here. Around. Okay. Um, Speaking of things, uh, you know, two weeks from now, the situation in Eastern Europe might be different, Marco, but I feel like we would be remiss if we didn't start chatting, um, at least without mentioning a little bit about what's going on with Russia and and Eastern Europe. I saw just today, Lavrov is saying that uh, Russia wants NATO troops out of Romania and Bulgaria and everywhere else, apparently. You got any any thoughts that the folks should be keeping in mind in terms of Russia as we go forward the next couple of weeks? Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm also interested in what you're thinking as well. I mean, you and I, you know, you cu- we cut our teeth together at Stratfor, kind of looking at these things. Um, um, I've spent a lot of time on Eastern Europe early in my career. Um, obviously, I'm from Serbia, so I was just assigned, you know, I was, uh, I was assigned, uh, you know, by default to cover these things. Um, first of all, I think, like, let's talk big picture for a second, you know, because we haven't done this in a while. Mm-hmm. A big picture here, I think, is that this has 
very little to do with NATO expansion. Like, you know, I just don't, I don't believe the Russians, you know, like they can't be stupid enough to believe that anybody in the West, other than Blinken and Biden, like <laughs> want Ukraine in NATO. Uh, the 2008 Bucharest summit that they keep referring to as like the moment when Georgia and Ukraine were made, you know, what? No, Germany literally showed up at that summit and told um, the Americans like, no way. No way are we letting Ukraine in. And this is what this is known. You know, like Lavrov and Putin don't have like misinformation here. They know what happened. There's no I mean, I will I will show up on this podcast. I'll eat my 80 page chart pack <laughs> if Ukraine ever joins the EU or NATO. I, I'll say that again. And I, by the way, I'll give you that bet in perpetuity. Yeah. So when we're both like 84 years old, I will show up on this uh, uh, podcast and I will eat it you know, for your audience, because one, 43 million Ukrainians are not going to join the common um, labor market of the EU. That's not going to happen post Brexit, post Lega Nord, post whatever. Uh, second, uh, there's no way that a country as large as Ukraine with as, as antagonistic relationship with Russia is going to join an organization that has as one of the uh, as one of the sort of soft demands for membership that you don't have border disputes. Like that's, you know, and what was funny to me was that the White House came out and said, nah, it's cool. It's like, well, you don't get to decide, bro. You know, like the United States does not get to decide. Not now, not ever, quite frankly, but especially not in a multipolar world where Germany and France are going to be like, no, man, like unanimity is required for membership. So Russians know all of this, and then therefore we have to ask ourselves the question, like, okay, well, if it's not about NATO, and if it's not about some sort of a mythical backstabbing where it's some promise of not expanding NATO was broken, mm -hmm. what is this about? And, uh, you know, I have a pretty callous kind of answer to that, glib, callous, whatever you want to call it. I think, I think Putin just realizes that he messed up in 2014. He took away Ukraine's Texas and Florida. And now he's pissed that he can't get a GOP candidate elected. I'm obviously <laughs> making a extended metaphor here, but he took Crimea, half of Donetsk and half of Luhansk out of Ukraine. These people no longer vote in Ukrainian elections. And he's realizing that the position of Ukraine as a sovereign, non-Russian sphere of influence state is now ossifying, you know, and so he's um, I think there's also other things going on domestically. Uh, popularity is kind of reaching that point where he starts itching to invade other countries. And, you know, it seems like a, it's, it seems like a reasonable moment to poke the West. I also so that's that's kind of a petty. Mm -hmm. And by petty, I don't mean normatively. I'm not calling Putin petty. I'm, I'm calling him petty. You know, this is the petty geopolitics, petty geopolitics. Yeah. The grand geopolitical point here is I think that, and this is where I think Putin is doing the right thing, I think he's just trying to see what's West's price for Russia. I think that's what he's trying to do. So the petite, like, geopolitical reason for messing with Ukraine is like, hey, I got to save face, I messed up in 2014, okay, let's see what I can get more. I think the grand geopolitical issue is that I think he, throughout this year, in April, they put those troops in Ukraine on the border, then there was the Belarus migration crisis, which, by the way, it was Moscow telling Europe, like, hey, you believe in climate change. We believe in climate change. There'll be 30 million Central Asians showing up on your doorstep in 20, 30 years when the Caspian Sea, like, dries up, you know? So, like, hey, by the way, we also are 
border guards here. That was like a little notice message, you know, like from Friday. And then there was also uh, the Nord Stream 2 issue. I think that this year, Russia is just trying to kind of poke at the West and say, what is, what is your offer to flip us from China? Can we be the China of the 70s? Because look, we're in the middle. You guys seem to really hate the Chinese. The Chinese are really uh, concerned about you guys. What is it going to take for you guys to kind of like, like show us the money? You know, like what do we get if we're the pivot player? Um, so I think those are the two kind of issues going on here. And it has nothing to do with NATO expansion and like troops in Bulgaria and Romania. Like, I mean, come on, like what troops, you know, Patriot missile like batteries, like whatever. I mean, I used to write about that daily back when you and I were working together. I think all of that is kind of nonsense right now. Yeah. Well, there's, there's two things I want to ask you there. Do you think the Russian people really give a frack? I, I would even say that they don't want to deploy Russian troops abroad right now. I would think it's the same as like the Americans don't want their troops abroad. Why would the Russians want their troop abroad too? They just brought everybody home from Syria. They're running around in Africa doing God knows what. Why do they want to try and roll tanks to Kiev and what will be, I mean, I don't think they'll win. I don't think they have a shot. Like, is it really going to help his popularity that much? They have, first of all, uh, they have zero. Let, let me, anyone who's listening to this, there is 0% chance Russia wins if it invades Ukraine. Okay, like Ukraine invented partisans. You know what I mean? Like, this is their export, okay? It's, it's big. It's large. And Russia has absolutely no history of winning offensive wars. In fact, every time Russia invades somebody else in a big way, the government crumbles. The Crimean War. And I'm talking about the 19th century. Hashtag history facts. Okay, that's what I, I'm going back there. I'm going yeah. back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That led to the emancipation of the serfs, man. Okay, that was that was a huge loss for Russia that caused massive domestic uh, problems because they got their asses spanked by uh, the Turks. The second was the 1905 Russo-Japanese War. How did that yeah, turn out? Not so good. They sent three fleets over and the Japanese keep sinking them. And then finally, there was a revolution in, uh, in, in Russia where the Duma was basically given powers, right? That was the first kind of a democratic revolt that the Tsar had to like allay the plebs. Then of course, 1916, 1917, the Bolshevik Revolution, I would argue Russia was the aggressor in World War I. I mean, part of the reason there was a revolt is because secret papers were revealed where it showed that Russia was joining the war not to fight with its fellow Orthodox Christian Serbs, but rather to take colonial possessions of Austro-Hungarian Central um, European territories. So it was a war of expansion and people got pissed. Like, wait, we're dying in trenches in like Poland and Ukraine because of what? And then the third, of course, most important, and the one that I know Vladimir Putin knows, is the 1980 Afghanistan war. So you're absolutely right. I think it makes absolutely no sense. Now, do I have some sort of insights into what the Russian populace thinks? No, but I have heard what you're saying is kind of the general consensus. Unlike in 2014, when the media was selling a narrative in Russia that a bunch of Western Ukrainian Nazi sympathizers were marching on Crimea to ethnically cleanse the Russian speakers, there doesn't seem to be as much of that uh, today. And so I, I think you're right. I think that, and by the way, I think Putin knows this. So then that leaves us with the other scenarios though, which is a limited incursion into Donbass to ossify the gains in Luhansk and Donetsk. That would be, and you know, there's a way to do that in which the markets get panicked. 
And what mm -hmm. I mean by that, in 2008 Georgia uh, scenario, uh, Russian tanks were outside of Tbilisi. You know, I mean, they, they went all the way. And there was a moment when a lot of folks thought that, well, Russia was just going to annex Georgia. And that was just a head fake. That was just a little like, hey, you know, Sekashvili, like, let me just show you what we can do. And then they moved back to South Ossetia and Abkhazia and just ossified what was kind of de facto already the case. If they do that this time, there'll be tanks outside of Kiev. You know, folks listening to this podcast will remember my name as a moron, like that Marco Popovich. Yeah, that guy was an idiot because, like, you know, the S&P 500 is selling off, you know, like, holy crap. And then they pull back and just ossify what's already kind of a reality. So that that could be a scenario that's that's a limited incursion, but it's scarier than just a limited incursion. Yeah. What uh, before we leave this topic, uh, I, I feel like you brought up the the topic that is all geopolitical nerds' favorite hypothetical conversation right right now, which is this Russia, China, U.S. triangle, and who's going to mm. become friends with who, and who's um, you know rallying to whose side. And there was actually we had a Russian analyst on this podcast a couple of weeks ago, and he said something I thought was very flippant. He said something I'm paraphrasing. It was something along the lines of, "As long as Russia has nuclear weapons, we're not worried about China," which I thought was kind of a strange thing to say. But do you? Th I mean. You sort of alluded to the fact that maybe Putin wants to see what he can get out of the West and see what their price is um, for flipping. But is that really a good deal for Russia? I mean, China's a big problem for Russia if that relationship goes antagonistic. The Russians also took some territory from the Chinese before they had their aborted war with the Japanese. So, I mean, is, do you feel like that's it? I would think that he wants to maintain neutrality between them. But maybe I'm maybe I'm not thinking five steps ahead with Putin. Well, I think that... Um... No, I think, look, I think if China is um, what it is today, I think that Russia and China can work together very, very, very easily. You know, so, um, but if, but if, if there's a chance that China does become a regional hegemon, which I think most people probably assume there is, I'm probably on the other side of the spectrum. I think China has a lot of problems, you know, that it has to overcome. Um, but uh if putin has to assign some probability to that outcome which he has to because he's running a country it's his responsibility to do so i think he needs to also be worried about that i mean russia has east asian possessions um you know and i think that becoming china's petrol station is not necessarily superior to what it can get from the west mm -hmm. and so um i wrote uh i wrote a report in july i actually posted it on my linkedin so this one is is a freebie for all your listeners and for everyone else. And yeah, in July of 2021, I wrote a piece uh, titled, Is Russia About to Flip Sides? And the way I approach this is I looked at the history, you know, and the history of Russia is one where Russian leaders are adept enough at the geopolitical, you know, game of risk that they can kind of overcome their problems or their enmity and turn to their enemies um, specifically for acquisition of technology. Mm -hmm. And the most kind of um, the most interesting part of this story is how much U.S. corporates cooperated with the communist government in uh, Soviet Union between 1920s and 1930s. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, Stalin Stalin made um, a speech, and I quote here, where he said, "The combination of the Russian revolutionary sweep with American efficiency is the essence of Leninism." You know, <laughs> great, great quote. I mean, it's such it's a great quote. quote. Stalin, like saying American efficiency is Leninism. And um, Russia has had these 
Russia is just a very adept country. It doesn't have to worry about domestic problems or like hypocrisy or human rights records of its enemies. And it can just turn on a dime. And so, yeah, I do think that Putin is poking and seeing what he can get, which is a very smart thing to do. And um, my question, though, is how much, uh, how much, how, how qualified, how, how competent is American leadership today to be able to, like, catch on this, you know? And the second is how much does America care? And this is something that a lot of people, I think, are missing right now. Um, and especially your listeners, you know, like who are probably lean mostly towards the U.S. Like nobody's asking the question of like, wait, isn't America kind of instigating a lot of issues today? Like a lot of these risks, you know, America's basically poking China with Taiwan. Mm-hmm. There's all sorts of things that the, the Biden administration has done that even the Trump administration didn't do when it came to Taiwan. And on Ukraine, you have a White House just saying total lies when it comes to Ukrainian potential membership. Like now, American allies in Europe don't want to like openly disagree with the U.S., but under the table, they're telling the Russians, come on, man, we all know they're not entering. Well, no, but the M- M- Macron at the European Parliament this week basically said, no, we're not with the U.S. Like Europe needs to come up with a solution. I'm done with this stuff. And it devolved into a, a fight about the French elections or whatever. But he, he's been very blunt. He wants none of it. Okay, well, see, I, I didn't catch on that because no one in America covered it. <laughs> you know, to yeah, my point. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah and, 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 and I just think that we have to understand something. Like when America was in a unipolar world, when America was like, you know, the first amongst equals, when America was running the world, it had, it had a sort of a reputational uh, benefit from making sure that everyone was in line. So when America was the bully in the schoolyard, it wanted to pop everyone who wanted to start, you know, shit. I don't know if we can swear on this podcast. We can absolutely. It is marked explicit for that reason. Just for you. Okay. Just for me. Just for Marco. Okay. (laughs) So like when America was running the world, quote unquote, there was this reputational point of having an order. Also, there was like a material reason to have an order because presumably America crafted the world order to benefit itself. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Trump's point was that that was no longer working. Now that America is uh, starting to realize, now that it's dawning on America that we're in a multipolar world, I would argue about eight years too late, but okay. Finally, American policymakers, it's dawned on them that nobody really cares what they say. No one's going to ban Huawei because American undersecretary of state for Southeast, West, North, <laughs> South Asia shows up in your country and he's like, ban Huawei. You're like, no, sorry, we make money working with the Chinese. Oh, and by the way, your crap, your hardware has just as much spyware as anybody else's. So now that Americans have kind of finally realized, the folks at Foggy Bottom have finally realized that that's the case, that's a really important moment because cognitively now, I think America no longer has an interest in maintaining order. And in fact, poking, being the guy in a bar, poking somebody and saying like, hey, you know what Ukraine said about your mother? (laughs) Hey, I heard Taiwan is kind of like, you know, but your girl a drink at the end of the bar. Like America is now in a position where I think American policymakers realize, oh, wait, this isn't our order anymore. Let's disrupt it. We're behind two oceans. We can do whatever we want. And I think there's a little bit of that going on in Ukraine and in Taiwan. And now the question is, are Russia and China sophisticated enough to look through this 
and say, I'm not going to go for your provocations. You know, I know what you're doing. You're trying to draw me into the ludicrously stupid endeavors that you yourself engaged in mm. in Iraq and Afghanistan. I know what you're doing here. You know, you want me to do what you did in 2004 and onwards. And, and so we'll see. But I, but I, so on one end, you can argue American policymakers don't know what they're doing. But on the other hand, you could argue that they're a pure genius and they're just starting all these fires that they don't, they're like, they're starting fires they can't put out, but they don't want to put them out. Yeah, um, that's the most optics, optimistic spin on it I've heard. I don't think they know what they're doing, and they might be doing what you're talking about unintentionally, but I don't yeah, think... Yeah, subconsciously. Yeah, subconsciously, sure. Um, that's a great segue, though, because I, I was going to say this for later, but you also just wrote a piece about China, and you've already mentioned China, so we should probably just dive into China. And I don't know if you had a chance to read um, Xi's big speech at Davos this week. Where it was, was amazing. It was, it was amazing, and I, amazing. when I read it, I was like, is this what, like... McKinley sounded like when he was giving speeches at the end of the 1800s when the US was rising and wanted everyone to trade with them and they knew they had the entire world by the ball. Like it, he really feels like the uber capitalist of the world and he just wants everything to go that way. Um, why did you think it was amazing? I mean, I, th I thought it was amazing for a petite, petty reason. <laughs> I thought it was uh, interesting because he was uh, asking us not to raise interest rates. Mm -hmm. You know, and so I actually don't think this was a speech of McKinley. I think this was a speech of a leader who's actually quite insecure about his economy and his position in the world. Mm -hmm. So I, that's, I, I would take that side of that interpretation, you know, because so the piece that we published in China called uh, China's Three Traps or the Three Traps of China, also on LinkedIn, by the way. It, it'll be on LinkedIn and we'll also have links to it uh, in, the, in the podcast. It's already on LinkedIn, yeah. You know, so it's, it's there for you guys. It's a pretty long piece. And it's our net assessment um, of China. And to us, it's very important um, to kind of think about where China's going. And the irony is that while we're pretty bearish about Chinese economy, we're pretty bullish about the opportunity to invest in China. Hmm. And that might be like, wait, what? How can that be? Well, if we were really bullish about Chinese economy and we thought that China was going to overtake the U.S., well, then there will be geopolitical confrontations between the two because the U.S. will not be able to like, leave it alone. And then we will have a confrontation and then you don't want to invest in China. So the irony here is that if you want to invest in China, you have to kind of have a, a relative muted view of Chinese next 10 years. And um, I think that China is, is really trapped by three things. First, Chinese geography. It can't get over the fact that 90 percent of its um, oil is imported via sea. Most of it through the Straits of Hormuz. It's very far away from China. China doesn't have the power projection capabilities to deal with that. Mm -hmm. So that's like the first trap. The second trap of China is the middle income trap. Chinese growth is decelerating. And a lot of, you know, analysts are uh, ascribing that to COVID, zero COVID policies and so on. I'm not. I think the combination of demographics, but let's leave that aside. And particularly household indebtedness. Mm -hmm. This is something that most people don't talk about when they talk about China. Even China bears who love being bearish about China don't talk about the fact that households in China are now more indebted than American households. So if you look at household debt as percent of disposable income, so not as GDP, as percent of disposable income, Chinese households are actually more indebted than American. And this means that the middle class growth story 
the, in, the dual circulation story that the Chinese policymakers and American policymakers think is the future of China, this idea that it becomes more mercantilist and more reliant on domestic consumption, that, that's it's patently false. Can I stop you there and ask, is that because so much of Chinese wealth is tied up in real estate and those households are taking on debt to buy real estate or is there something else going on there? I think it's a, a lot of things. So um, this all starts off in 2001. You know, in 2001, the Fed remained overly easy because of geopolitics. September mm -hmm. 11th happens. The Fed keeps interest rates lower than they should have been because there was a fear that domestically America would have political you know, problems because of a massive terrorist attack. And we that combined with deregulation of the financial industry leads to the housing bubble. 2008, the housing bubble blows up. And within 12 months, the American consumer disappears as a global growth catalyst, just disappears. The Chinese policymakers were shocked. They were absolutely shocked how quickly the West, the West turned towards austerity, mm -hmm. turned away from, you know, like juicing up households to spend. And so in 2010, Chinese policymakers initiated like 2009, 2010, one of the most extraordinary, um, you know, credit fueled stimuluses ever. From 2010 to 2020, for 10 years of the last cycle, China was the only game in town when it came to macro catalyst for growth. You could have wound your watch, Jacob, on China's total social financing, TSF, which is the broad measure of credit growth in China. Everything was correlated with Chinese TSF, copper prices, oil prices, uh, Swedish equities. <laughs> U.S. 10-year bond yield had a one-to-one -one correlation with Chinese credit. Like it almost didn't matter what happened in America because America didn't exist as far as macro investing. As far as macro investing is concerned, the United States of America ceased to exist as a catalyst. Hmm. And so throughout 2010 to 2020, China tried its best to deleverage and to stop. But every time they did, entire global growth would slow down. So they kept re-leveraging their households. So yes, you are right to answer the question circuitously. Yes, it's condos, but it's also households were incentivized to buy cars. They were incentivized to put their kids in expensive tutoring agencies. They were incentivized to move. They were incentivized to buy second and third, all that stuff. And we now are getting to a point. So think of America and China. You know, they don't like each other, but they're like mom and dad of the world. And so at one point, you know, dad lost his job. Mom had to work hard. You know, now mom is exhausted. Now dad has to work hard. And so... Um, that's what happened over the last decade, and just like American households became overly indebted in 2008, uh, Chinese are. And that's a really big problem because it means that uh, they are reaching their, the end of their debt super cycle at precisely a very inopportune political moment when they have bid up expectations of their middle class of ever more growth, and they're falling into this middle income trap, which is why you saw last year the shift towards common prosperity. Once Chinese policymakers realized the pie can't really grow as fast as they expected, now they have to divide up that uh, pie through income inequality fighting measures. But to me, what that also means, and this is really important for geopolitical issues, it means that expecting China to become more domestically oriented economy and therefore more geopolitically independent is false. It's, it's, a, fal it's a false narrative. China's going to have to double and triple down on investment-like growth and export-like growth. Mm -hmm. Which is why Xi Jinping is making the speech in Davos, not out of strength, but out of weakness. 
out of this concern that holy crap guys guys inflation you know yeah we get it but like do you have to raise interest rates because we kind of have to depend on your households pressing you know buy on amazon.com for our economy because i can't rely on re-leveraging anymore and then the third uh the third uh, trap of china is demographics many people talk about demographics i don't want to do that because we all know chinese demographics are poor but the reason i think that matters for for geopolitics is because if China is going to have to maintain a high level of investment as percent of GDP, at the same time that it grows old and their savings goes down as percent of GDP, it means that we are probably in the early stages of them getting into a current account deficit. And countries that have a current account deficit have to finance it through external sources of capital, i.e. investors. So China is actually going to become more addicted, not just to export-led growth, because of domestic indebtedness, not just external sources of oil because of its geographical traps, but also external sources of capital. And so I think that the U.S. administration is, you know, um, cutting off capital to China at exactly the wrong time. Mm -hmm. Because, because if China is going to become more addicted to foreign capital, you get it addicted to your own foreign capital, and then you have some levers. You can show up in Beijing and say, like, well, look. Like, let's talk about issues X, Y, and Z. After all, our investors are helping you balance your books. You know, like, and, and that's, that's why I think that uh, the next decade is not going to be a decade where China-U.S. tensions dominate. You know, this is a very counterintuitive view. No one on this podcast probably has ever said that. But, like, my point has been always the time to forecast U.S.-China and their tensions was 10 years ago. That forecast was correct. This was the most important geopolitical issue for the next two years. I'm not sure it's going to dominate uh, the next decade. It's going to be there. Don't get me wrong. They're not going to suddenly start, start hugging and singing Kumbaya. But I think that we're in a much more of a multipolar world than a bipolar world. And I think that China is, uh, has these challenges it needs to overcome. And I think that China will tone down its geopolitical ambitions, as I would argue it has done over the last two years. Yeah, it's funny, you and I kind of get to the same place, at least for the next five to 10 years. And you and I probably the diverge after that, because I'm with you on the, I'm not sure about the export fueled growth. But I mean, Xi Jinping, since the very beginning has talked about L shaped growth, and now he needs to have the dual circulation strategy. And yes, we need exports, but we also need to sell to the domestic market. But he's he's never wanted to scare away investment. If anything, all these regulations and rules that everybody seems to freak out about every time they're enforced. That's China trying to establish rule of law so that investors feel more comfortable coming in. That's where I think it's going. But um, I, I also tend to agree with you, though, that, I mean, for the next five to 10 years, it's sort of like Britain and Germany in the 1890s. Like nobody's ready to duke it out yet. If China succeeds at all these grand plans that it has, then maybe 2030, 2040, we're talking about it. But for the next 10 years, sort of let the good times roll. But you, you brought up interest rates. Um, do you think the Fed's going to listen to Xi Jinping? I saw the ECB was already toning their their comments down just today. Um, but do, do you think the Fed's going to listen, or they're going to they're going to say Xi, this is uh, not our problem? I think the so there, that's the big question now in the macro markets. Uh, macro investors are wondering: uh, has something changed where the Fed no longer has this mythical Fed foot? Mm. You know, where the Fed is just going to back off? Uh, it will definitely, I think, not care about what Xi Jinping says, um, which is which I think is a problem because she does have a really important point. Like we should we should coordinate our policies together. Mm -hmm. And Chinese economy is important. 
because Chinese economy, if it's strong, it will lead to a sell-off in the 10-year treasury market. Our yields are going to rise thanks to China's strong economy. And our 10-year yield needs to rise to accommodate the front-end yield increase, which is what the Fed controls. In other words, if the Chinese economy is not healthy, our long end of the curve doesn't, the yields don't go up, and then we don't have room to raise interest rates on the short end. Yeah. And then what we get is an inverted yield curve, which uh, means a recession is coming. So that's, that's kind of where, like, yes, the Fed should listen to Xi, it won't. Um, there's this hashtag inflation sucks right now, Twitter hysteria, that inflation is the most important political risk out there. Um, and as all Twitter hysterias, it is real until it isn't. And so I think in the short term, the Fed is going to ignore everything and just focus on being mean. Mm. But I'm not ready to diverge from my mega theme of the Buenos Aires consensus, this idea that we're, that we're in a populist era where we're no longer following laissez-faire tenets. And my second point about that is that the U.S. is the most populous country of all in the West in this world. And so I do think that there is still a Fed put. The Fed will pivot away from caring about inflation, but it's going to be a much lower strike price on the S&P 500. In other words, if in the last cycle you were buying on dips at a 10% correction, maybe you don't do that this time. Maybe they let it run beyond just a 10% correction. And that's why I've been bearish since the beginning of December. What's happening right now in the markets is very much what I expected. Uh, actually, I got my face ripped off by the Santa rally, which I didn't expect. <laughs> so December was kind of like, oh my God, really? And then I just didn't change my view. And now, now we're experiencing exactly what I expected, specifically with tech stocks and Bitcoin. Um, the Fed is showing its teeth. And it's showing its teeth because of this like Twitter hysteria that inflation is the biggest political risk to Biden, um, which I don't think is true in the long term. Recession is the biggest risk. Uh, and at some point, they're going to have to find a balance between like being tough on inflation and not letting recession happen because they're overly tight, you know. Um, and I think the and I think they'll be conscious of like asset price depreciation. So 15, 20 percent correction is perfectly normal and in a way healthy, in my view, because it allows the 10 year yields to rise. That's what that's what needs to happen if they're going to start raising rates. Yeah. Did you see Yellen was out today talking about how she thought inflation was going to be down to 2% by the end of just this year? I thought that was... <laughs> oh, listen, I'll tell you this. It is a 100% chance of that happening if we have a recession and unemployment is at 10%. A yeah. 100% chance that inflation will be down to 2%. Now, I've called inflation um, correct this cycle. So one of the first things I said when, when uh, COVID happened was, look, we're going to have inflation for a number of reasons, blah, blah, blah. We don't have to get into it. But the point is, like, I think they need to decide what they're going to call a victory, right? If they consider victory 2% inflation, then folks sell everything by cash. We're going to a recession. Okay, because you can, you can easily end inflation. It's easy. It's easy. You just have a recession and boom, inflation goes down. But I don't think that's because of the Buenos Aires consensus, which is fundamentally this idea that policymakers are so afraid of a political revolt in this country, that they're gonna be populist, I think that they're going to take as a victory just peaking of inflation. So if inflation peaks at like six, 7% and then goes sideways or slightly lower, they'll be like, oh, we're asymptotically approaching our mandate. We won, you know? And so I think that that's where we're gonna go because otherwise, if they're truly set on getting to 2%, like 
you know, we've got problems. Yeah, I hear you, but which is also an excellent segue to one of the things you talked about the last time you were on and that I wanted to check in with you about not just the Buenos Aires consensus, but the race to zero and sort of ESG things in general. And you talked about on the last time you were on the podcast about how there was this kind of perfect storm of technology was advancing enough and there was populism and there were national security concerns and capital was cheap. Those low, low interest rates, all of that conspired to make us this race to zero real and how really this was going to be kind of a monumental cycle in, in the global economy. Are, are you pivoting away from that at all because the Fed is starting to get mean a little bit? Or do you think this is just kind of a, a momentary burp? And then, but as we get to the course of the decade, your thesis is going to continue to play out. Well, well the key point of that thesis is that it's an inflationary cycle. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so the, the title of the report where I elucidated those things is like geopolitics is not transitory, you know, as in like, hey, bunch of egghead economists like a lot of things are transitory but these big picture issues are not and so there's no way that they can raise rates and deal with it you know yeah. and so and so i think that again i think that right now we're in a hashtag inflation sucks twitter hysteria everyone's talking about cnn sucks. fox news is talking about it obviously republicans are emphasizing it because biden's an idiot right blah 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 but the truth is the reason we have inflation is not just the stimulus. The reason we have inflation is also these structural supply problems I've been talking about since the beginning of COVID that precede COVID. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to overcome them, you have to continue to incentivize CapEx. And I think that if the Fed policymakers don't know that yet, I'd be surprised, but they will pivot to that point the moment that their hawkishness becomes overly painful. And by the way, the BOE president did, like in September, when BOE delayed its rate hikes, that's precisely what the governor of the Bank of England said. He said, look, I can't raise interest rates and fix trucking shortages. I can't fix natural gas shortages by raising interest rates. You know, it's like a crude tool. So, um, yeah, so the way to think about it is when you have a big picture view, obviously it could be wrong. So I could be wrong if we have a recession, the end, end of story. Uh, my view is that we are in this Buenos Aires consensus cycle, which is different from the Washington consensus. We're not in a laissez-faire world. We're going to have higher inflation and policymakers will tolerate it. But each cycle has like mini cycles. And in this particular big cycle of populism, we have a mini cycle where the Fed officials are kind of going back and saying, well, OK, not everything in the Washington consensus was stupid. We're going to raise rates a little bit to take some heat off of you know, inflation. Um, but as soon as the pain hits, you'll see people start clamoring for like, wait a minute, inflation's not that bad. Like, I want my job. And that's going to happen with another 15% down in people's 401k, mm -hmm. you know, and all the, all the like yellowing millennials and Gen Z, when Bitcoin hits, you know, 2K, they're going to be like, no, 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 I'm cool with inflation. Let's go. And by the way, this is the part, this is why I call it a Twitter hysteria. I'm not saying it doesn't have an impact on Biden's approval rate. I'm not saying that like Tucker doesn't get a lot of like airtime from saying mm. that inflation is like up. But here's what I want to say. 23%, I think it's 23. Don't quote me on it, although you are quoting me on it. <laughs> Something like one in four or one in five Americans quit last year. Quit. Just said, YOLO, I'm out. You know? So not so sure that inflation is 
a real political risk. And people aren't really in pain. Now, I know this is a callous comment. One of your guests is going to come on and say, Dan Marco, he doesn't know what the real people think. Well, let me tell you what the real people The bottom third, the bottom third in terms of income have seen real gains in their income. Just show you the chart. You take the bottom third in terms of income, they've seen real gains despite 7-8% CPI. Their wages are rising like a boss. So the bottom third, even with CPI where it is, have seen real gains in income. It's the middle and the higher income that have seen real, real like incomes go down because mm -hmm. of CPI. Now, those are the people that Fed officials go to cocktail parties and they talk about how, oh, I wanted to buy a SUV for my uh, chalet in Denver and I couldn't because the prices are so high and blah, 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 blah. And so they talk about like the price of olives in their martinis. And so they're like, oh my God, inflation is a problem. But let's not forget the middle and the higher third in terms of incomes also have seen what? Massive appreciation in assets. They have assets, 401ks, stocks, their sons and daughters, crypto portfolios, <laughs> and then, and then real estate assets. So this whole narrative that like inflation is hurting Americans is utter and total Twitter hysteria bullshit. The bottom third of Americans are seeing real gains in their incomes because that's where the labor shortage are. They're making bank. You know, it's, it's, it's owners of capital that have to pay owners of labor. It's the middle and the upper third who are seeing in terms of income lower returns because of inflation, but they've seen appreciation of assets. So what am I saying? I'm saying that when the S&P 500 is down 20%, call me then and let's talk if, if inflation is still a political risk number one to Biden. Hell no. It's going to be recession and the fact that S&P 500 is down 20%. Well, I, I will call you then. Um, but to, to stay on that for a bit, I mean, it, it seems like one of the, when you look at how inflation is breaking down, not just in the United States, but pretty much everywhere in the world, it's energy prices that is far and away running away with it. I mean, the stuff like, tr like trucking, for instance, that's not, there's no real shortage. There's a, that's about people not wanting to pay truckers enough. Like there's plenty of actual truckers out there, but there do seem to be some shortages. As you said, you alluded to natural gas. The one I'm worried about that I wasn't expecting to be worrying about, you know, six months ago is coal. Coal had record prices in 2021. It's probably have record prices for 2022. And the Indonesians, you know, just scared the crap out of the Japanese and the South Koreans and everybody else because they banned coal exports for a couple of weeks because they didn't have enough coal. So it's funny, like we've been talking about solar and renewables and wind and all this other stuff. And it seems to me like we're in this mini part of the cycle where it seems like because there hasn't been that capex or that focus on the things that actually power the economy right now for the next year or two, we're kind of screwed. Because there's not enough of this stuff to go around and renewables Absolutely. aren't quite ready to take the shoulder. And I just, that scares me a little bit. I wonder where that goes. Well, I mean, look, first of all, it goes to truckers getting paid 500K. <laughs> right? I, and I God should, bless them. And that's I the should part go of become this. a trucker is what you're saying. Okay, yeah. Right. And, and listen, listen, that's the part of this that I'm telling you is Twitter hysteria. Like the bottom third of Americans are going to start enjoying this 4 to 8% inflationary world. You know, and a lot of people are not happy about that. So they're like, oh, inflation sucks. Man, I'm not so sure. The second thing is one thing that I would think the other side of what you said is that it's global. So, yes, inflation is global. I, I don't want to counter that as an objective fact, mm -hmm. but it's worse in America than in the rest of the world. Hmm. So, I, I mean, there's a clear chart. Uh, U.S. minus world CPI differential. If you put the euro area, China, Canada, Mexico. The average headline CPI of those countries relative to the U.S., the U.S. inflation is far above that of theirs. Mm -hmm. 
we are having the most deflationary. Um, no, I'm not counting like Argentina or Turkey. Like they don't count. Like all of the countries that are like sane, U.S. has the most extreme inflation outcomes, which is what the Buenos Aires consensus predicts. We are the furthest to the left, to the populace of everyone else. We produce most stimulus, both fiscal and monetary. And we are the last, um, especially when you look at some emerging market economies that started raising rates last year. Um, we are we're behind that. And we were still pumping in QA and all that stuff. So um, I think that, you know, that's just something I want to emphasize because it's very relevant for thinking about how to invest. In terms of where inflation goes, absolutely. Like, I don't see it coming down anytime soon. Um, but, but is inflation of 3 to 6% really that big of a problem? You know, and I would argue, no, it isn't. It is if you're an owner of capital. It is if you're a saver. But, you know, screw you. You had great 20 years run. And that's, I'm not saying that like Marco Papich is telling you to go screw yourself because you're a saver. <laughs> I'm just saying that's what politicians are going to say. Like, the media voter does not care about your asset prices, man. Like, like, let's be clear. And so that's why hashtag inflation sucks. I hear, I talk to a lot of people with a lot of money. That's why my job is. And all I hear from them is like, oh, inflation is hurting poor people. No, 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 no. It's hurting you. You're starting to get myth, you know, about rising prices. You're being priced out of your nice neighborhoods. The poor people are fine, man. They're fine with 5% inflation because their wages are going through the roof, as your point about uh, truckers and as data suggests yeah and that's why that's why i'm saying like the world you're describing is one where inflation doesn't go back to the mandate of uh you know one to two two and a half percent cpi but i do think that's a world that policymakers will be okay with as long as of course cpi isn't above like eight percent for a meaningful period of time then they have a problem they have to be super hawkish yeah. um and i do think if you look at some data like if you look at uh container uh, uh rates right now like uh, if you look at global container freight rates, they are coming mm -hmm. down. The Baltic dry index is coming down. And I doubt that energy prices, which is what you're talking about, can have as much of an increase as they had last year. It's all about the second derivative. So while you may be right, oil prices, coal prices may have another leg up. The question is, will they have as much of a leg up as last year? If they don't, the impact on CPI is actually deflationary. Yeah. And so that's why I think CPI peaks, we settle at somewhere around three to 6%, and the Fed just calls that a victory at yep. some point. Not now, though. Not now. Now they have to show their teeth. Um, you mentioned them, and we'll go to them. And over in some of the work I'm doing at Cognitive Investments, we're, we're actually long Turkey a little bit right now. Um, bathe yourself in your indifference and tell me what Erdogan is doing. Because at first, I was with everybody else. I thought he was nuts. And uh, I'm beginning to think he's not so nuts. I'm beginning. I'm not sure if he's going to be right or if he's going to win out in the end. But I don't think he's crazy. I think I'm beginning to see what he's trying to do and that he has a puncher's chance. But t tell me what you think about Turkey right now. Uh, you know, I haven't spent a lot of time on Turkey, so I, I'm going to punt it back to you and just hear your thoughts. And I can be like, I can be like, you know, sanity check for you. So why are you? Why are you bullish Turkey? Well, it's funny. I'm bullish turkey because I wasn't bullish turkey in some ways, <laughs> is is the answer. But like back in 2018, when there was that emerging markets currency crisis, the reason that the Turkish lira was right there with Argentina as kind of the worst performer was because they had all this U.S. dollar denominated debt, 
And because they had just Erdogan had just gorged on dollar denominated debt for years. And he he'd used that to juice up Turkey's growth rates, to line the pockets of all these politicians that he used to create these manufacturing industries, all those other kinds of things. And the difference between then and now is that he's managed to get away from that dollar denominated debt. Now, the government's holding more of it. They're doing these fancy things where they're saying, hey, convert everything to lira. The government's going to guarantee your losses. So get it out of crypto, get it out of gold, get it all into the Turkish lira. But I think what he wants is independent monetary policy. He knows that you know Turkey imports 90% of its energy or something like that. If Turkey's going to be that levered, to what the Fed does, then Turkey really has no economic independence and he can't do what he needs to do to continue to line the pockets of all those politicians and companies that have allowed him to stay in power in the first place. And he's got an election coming in about a year where if he can win that election, suddenly he's got a mandate to maybe complete his authoritarianism or his sort of takeover of Turkish institutions and he can kind of go from there. So I think he is trying to disconnect from the US and trying to lean into this multipolar world and is expecting the Saudis or the Emiratis or the Chinese or somebody to realize this is really important strategic real estate and they're for sale. They don't want to be tied to the U.S. anymore and we'll go and rescue them. And the UAE just signed a $5 billion exchange swap this week. Maybe somebody else is going to come through. And then the last bit to it is that when you compare Turkey to all the other economies in the Middle East, I mean, they're the only ones with a real economy. It's not, mm. it's not based on energy exports or anything. It's all companies that are making things, that are making things that are increasingly more sophisticated. Um, it's a place you want to be with an extremely wonderful geography. And so you get all this stuff on the top, but it's, it's not about craziness and insanity and what Erdogan read in the Quran and what that means in terms of interest rates. I, I think what he's trying to do is get Turkey a little more independent. Am I crazy or am I onto something? I think you've articulated a really cogent argument. You know, I think, um, you know, first of all, Middle East money has always been like the variable in getting Turkey right. That's the most difficult to uh, quantify and to actually get data on. It was always very difficult to figure out how much Middle East, uh, um, Middle East capital flows were propping up Turkish assets. So I know people who were bearish Turkey in the last cycle who got their faces melted because they just didn't account for that. Mm. So I think that's a that's a really important. I think you're on the right track by focusing on that variable, like how much is capital from the Middle East moving into Turkey, and I think the high oil price is going to help that. Ironically, even though they should hurt Turkish current economy. Right. The second thing is that Turkey had a really bad year for a lot of reasons. You know, obviously, like. Unorthodox monetary policy aside, we can say, but like all emerging markets had a bad year, even those that had orthodox monetary policy that raised interest rates. And that was what was most interesting to me. Commodity prices went through the roof, but emerging markets did not like benefit from it. Mm -hmm. Even those that raised their interest rates, even those that followed the Washington consensus playbook from IMF and World Bank, they got punished. The one equity market that, that won last year was America. That was completely rewriting the playbook. It was doing all sorts of things that no one had ever done. It's like, you know, basically US ran an emerging market, you know, basket case monetary policy. And, 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 and you know, and the markets were like, yeah, that's great. And so I think that what Turkey is going to benefit from next year is, is two trends. One, China has reached the political threshold of pain. That's why Xi Jinping is you know, asking the rest of the world at Davos not to raise interest rates. And that's why I expect a really significant stimulus in China um, mm. in Q1. So that's good for 
uh, Turkey. That's good for emerging markets broadly. Emerging markets that lag commodity prices should benefit. Dollars should peak even as the Fed raises rates. Hmm. That will be good for Turkey as well. I mean, a dollar has already peaked. It's, uh, DXY is nestled at 95 and hasn't moved. Yeah. Um, and then finally, uh, energy prices. Your point about coal and other stuff going up, notwithstanding, I, I hear you, I agree with you, but again, it's the second derivative. I think the second derivative is going to be negative for energy prices, hmm. which should benefit. Like oil will stay elevated, but we're not going to go from 30 to 80. We'll go from like 80 to like 95 or 100. You know, and yeah. that's so, so, so the worst is behind us. So, yeah, I think you make a really strong point for Turkey. I mean, if I was an emerging market investor, I would say uh, that some of the commodity producing laggards will probably do better in Turkey. So I actually really like Brazil, even though there's political risks coming up. I like Chile. I like Peru. I like what's happening in uh, Latin America. I think, I think the, for Latin America, unlike Turkey, which is an importer of commodities, for Latin America, like, this is much simpler. You know, you've got U.S. yields going up. You have dollar peaking and probably going down. You have China stimulating you know, commodities who were completely just going through on the tear, and you have valuations really cheap. Like Karl Marx could rise from the grave, run in the Brazilian election, I'd still buy Brazil. Like, I don't care. <laughs> you know, I don't care. Like, Che Guevara could run Chile, and I'd be like, fine, who, who cares? Like, their terms of trade will be so eminently positive that they'll be washed in money. And then, you know, it'll be like Lula in 2004, where he was like a darling of the financial industry, even though he was like a former leftist military. It, yeah. I, I'm so I'm so glad you brought that up because I'm I'm I've been long Chilean equities for a while because I just thought the whole thing was overwrought about Chile and there's so much to like there. But I'm glad you brought up Brazil because I've been struggling with that. And if you look at the timeline with Lula, like Brazilian equities nosedived right before the election, and then after he was elected, then, yes. he became the media darling. So I've been trying to figure out: Do you wait till Lula gets in? Do you get through this election campaign and then things are going to rip, or is you know is now the time to start looking at Brazil? So uh. I was in your camp, you know, uh, I was cautious, like, eh, why, why mess with it? You know, like, just wait for a year. But the, you know what's interesting? So this sell-off started in January 4th, mm -hmm. you know, um, and Russia is underperforming MSCI DM. So Russia is underperforming developed markets, mainly because of this, you know, Ukraine business. Yeah. Almost every other emerging market economy that you would want to, that you would care about is outperforming significantly, including Brazil. So Chile, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Brazil. If you look at equities relative to uh, DM in uh, USD terms, EM Latin America is outperforming EM Asia significantly, like mm. significantly in the sell-off. We're talking as the US stock market is committing suicide and we're recording this on january 21st friday nasdaq's down 1.36 right off the bat you know it's just like uh s p 500 is 4436 as we're as we're recording this yeah, yeah. from january 4th to january 21st we have a sell-off uh brazil is up uh it's a little bit less up than chile is but it's up you know and so I don't know what to tell you, Jacob. Like that tells me, you know, sometimes the market is not stupid. Sometimes the market is just like, I don't care. I don't care about politics because things are so eminently good for Brazil at this point. Yeah. So I so I don't know. I'm starting to, you know, like 
I'm starting to lean towards Brazil ending the year of 2022 as the best performing market. And if it's not Brazil, it's someone from Latin America. They yep. just lagged so much. They lag commodities so much that it's like, it's, it's, it, 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 it doesn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. Okay. Um, I've got some. And by the way, and by the way, by the way, if I can just say one thing, yeah, yeah, please. Your Latin America missives. Hey, if you're listening to this podcast and you're not subscribed to Jacob's Latin America missives, then you know I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you like them. Although we could talk about that in a second, because uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that later. Um, all right, I got some over unders, and then we'll talk some basketball, and then we'll get you out. Yes, of here. Does that sound good. Great. Awesome. Uh, over under for interest rate hikes from the Fed this year. Wait, how many? Yeah, four. Over under four interest rate hikes from the Fed. Under. Under. How many do we think? Oh, I, I'm just going to take under four, like 3.9, which makes 3. no 9. sense. <laughs> okay. You know, and here's why. Here's why. I think they remain super hawkish for a while, and then the pain hits in, and then they, you know, back off. Um, so I'm just going to say under because of that. But, you know, it could be like just four. Um, if I had to like say what's my, I would say four and then they back off. Okay. Well, you, you can say push. I think that happens in, in part in the interruption. Isn't I think Kornheiser always gets mad at Wilbon cause he always pushes, <laughs> um, over under interest rates at 1.5% on January 1st, 2024. And I asked you this last time. You did. And I took over and I won. No, you took under. Wait, what? <laughs> no, I took over no, on 1.5 on the 10 year yeah. yield. Uh, yeah, hold on, hold on. Let, let me let me bring it up. I don't want to speak ill of uh, of Marco here. No, because I had a bet with a bunch of people that it would end above one point five. It would end at above. January first, two thousand twenty-two. Hold on, I'm looking. I'd be very surprised if I said under. You have to you have to go back and find the audio. Oh, I'm uh, yeah. I'm looking at the transcript right now. It says yeah under. And when do you think they go over? Uh, you set the line well. No, you, you you said under. Mm. All right. So well. so I I was hedging with your podcast, my other bets. <laughs> so tell me why over now. And by the way, uh, I know this because I have a bunch of bets on this with a bunch of people. They ended at one fifty one. Okay. You know, which is hilarious because so the people that owe me stake dinners, they lost by zero point one percent. Well, that's still a loss. A loss is a loss. A loss is a loss. Yeah. No, the, the line was very well set. Um. Yeah, I think I think it's going to be over. Unless we have a recession, or a or China fails to stimulate. Yeah, so the, the, the the nice thing about twenty twenty four though is you could have a recession in between that and oh sorry twenty twenty four yeah twenty twenty four. Ooh, that's such an important question, Jake. For so many reasons, right? Like U.S. election. Yeah. Um. So. <clears throat> <laughs> For, uh, for, I, I have to tell for the listeners, for the first time, I think, in the history of this podcast, Marco like looked up and leaned back in his chair. <laughs> well, I want to be consistent, right? I got to be consistent to the framework. So if we are in the Buenos Aires consensus, what does that mean? Buenos Aires consensus means that policymakers do not want to impose any pain on, on their constituents because mm -hmm. they're just afraid. That's why Argentina is a mess because they don't do things that are difficult. Yeah. It's... You know, uh, no pain, no gain. It's, uh, you know, like, um, and so we are in that world, I think. And so what I think is going to happen is that 2022 will be Europe hawkish Fed. Then they back off a little bit. 2023, I don't know what happens, but 
you know, 2024, I think that they cannot allow a recession to happen. You know, and they take they they go into election with inflation having been somewhere between three and six percent for three years. Yeah. Because if they take a recession, like it's over. Republicans will run a chocolate Labrador and he'll beat Biden. Or whoever. Like I don't care who. The Democrats could run, you know, a young Bill Clinton, Ronald Reagan clone and lose to a chocolate Labrador. If there is a recession in 2024, that's that's kind of my view. So I think that uh, the tenure will have to be higher than 1.5 in 2024 if that is true. Like if, if you had three years worth of recession between three and six percent, how is the tenure at 1.5? All right. Well, and so this next one is tied to this exact question, so I'll ask it now. So it was going to be over under one presidential term for Joe Biden. Ooh, that's so good. I mean, that's also such a great question. I would have to take under. Yeah, why? I mean, I don't think Trump wins. You know, the the Republican primary. I don't really? think he wins. Great. Yeah. Tell me why. I I'm convinced that he's going to. Tell me why I'm crazy. Um, you know, like Democrats have been very good at strategic voting. You know, and that's something no I'm sorry, Republican. Did, did did you just say Democrats were good at something? I wasn't sure if I. <laughs> They're good at strategic voting. Like, look, I remember in 2019, I was the only Biden. I was the only person with money riding on Biden. Mm -hmm. And I had so many people laugh in my face. You know, mainly Republicans were like, no way. You know, they're going to elect the communists. And I'm like, ah, you should probably lay off of Twitter. Yeah. <laughs> you know, because, like, there is a constituency in the Democratic Party that's not on Twitter. Or is not on your Twitter. And yeah. they're going to vote for the guy who can be like Trump. And so the Democrats were like smart in that they elected the guy who could beat Trump. Now, you, you might disagree with his policies and, and his effectiveness and, you know, like um, all that stuff. That's fine. I'm not saying that. Like from a strategic perspective, Biden was like an instant meal. You know, he did what he was like. You, you broke glass. You pulled Biden out of the like the little box and he did what he was supposed to do, which was beat Trump. Yeah. Um, so I think that the Republicans will learn from that experience. And I think that they will learn that, you know, somebody other than Trump, than Trump probably waltzes into the White House very smoothly. And so I think that that's going to be a problem for Trump in the primary election. Hmm. Uh, I think the Republicans will be motivated. I think that uh, suburban families will be motivated to vote in Republican primaries. And they're going to turn out. And they're going to vote for somebody who is like, you know, capable of beating any Democrat out there. And that's why I think these governor elections that went against the Democrats in 2021 were so important because they illustrated to the Republicans that they can't get the suburban moms and dads to come out and vote for them. Um, they just need to put someone who's, you know, sane. And I think that that's that sh that should work really well against honestly anyone, even if Biden doesn't run like I. I don't, I don't see anyone on the Democratic side because they're on the economic side, they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. If they solve inflation, they cause a recession. If they don't solve inflation, then inflation will remain hashtag inflation sucks. Yeah. And then, you know, um, and then COVID, 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 COVID. COVID policies have, I think, done more to hurt Biden than anything else. People like say that his approval rating is down because of this, that or the other. I think it's just COVID. 
Yeah, it's hard to argue with that. It's and it's hard, you know. It, it's uh, I, I think all presidents would have struggled with it. So, yeah, no, yeah. that's fair. That is fair, and a lot of it has nothing to do with him because he is not like in your school district. Yep. You know, exactly. so um, but I think that this is there's going to be a big backlash. I think against the whole COVID thing, and it, you know, I'm starting to see more and more people, uh, just anecdotally, really have you know, have soured on kind of our policies as a country and not just in the U.S., everywhere. Everyone's mad everywhere. Every, people are just angry at this point and they just want it to be over. And I think that, you know, maybe the midterms are a good opportunity for Democrats to kind of take it in the gut and just like use that as a reset. Yeah. Uh, and then Biden can run against the Republican Congress as Clinton did, as Obama did, you know, but, uh, but uh, you know, I would take under at this point right now. Fair enough. Uh, basketball, uh, what do you think? I mean, I, I have nothing nice to say about the Pelicans. I have nothing nice to say about the Hawks. I assume you don't have much nice to say about the Lakers. How are you? No, feeling? no, I'm, you know, I, I just want to sit on the couch and, and talk to you about it. You know, and, uh, look, if, if you some, want, if you want to trade us LeBron, just send LeBron over to, to new Orleans. Uh, he can, we'll name him mayor of the city immediately. He right. can have the team for as long as he wants Look, I think the problem with the Lakers, I think we identified before, it's defense. They traded everybody who can defend on the perimeter. Uh, I don't think it's the age. I don't think it's the Russell Westbrook. Yeah. I'm the, like, I I didn't like that trade, but I'm like, okay, cool, whatever. I get it. Um, I think it's just defense, you know? And this is, this is the thing. Um, sometimes we get overly cute as managers, as 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 analysts you know and and what worked for the lakers in the bubble was defense it was javel mcgee and ad having these huge wingspans being able to close out on the three-point line and it was the guys who could take one-on-one defense which is really difficult in today's nba because there's so much space Mm -hmm. being able to stay in front of someone and that's caruso and kcp could do that and now nobody can do that and for some reason the lakers took that model that worked in 2020 ignored it and doubled down on let's get a bunch of people who can shoot threes you know and 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 then so that's the number one reason the other thing is just ad you know he's just frustrating and that was what charles barkley was saying on inside the nba i don't know how many other people think the same way but he has the stats he shows up every game it's like 28 and 15 whatever like he can do that but there are stretches of the game jacob where i don't even know he's present yeah yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't want to root for, for AD on my team. I, I will say, I went to a Pelicans game I was telling you about a little while ago, and it was it was the Nuggets. Um, mm. Jokic, Jokic is so good, man. Like, he, I, I would, like, can we just put them all away and just watch him play every single game? He was, he, like, he, he looks good on the television. He ate the Pelicans for breakfast. It was Literally, he probably literally <laughs> did eat at least one of them. Like, you know, <laughs> you, you have to check the bench. Like, is everybody here? <laughs> Nikola Jokic eat somebody. I think he might win the MVP again. Well, they have to do much better. I mean, you know, like right now, Memphis is doing really, really well. Like uh, Steph Curry, you know, like Golden State Warriors. Like yeah, they need so to rise. Steph kind of got cold for a month. KD is hurt now. Maybe CP3 gets gets the nod. I don't know. I feel like it's open for him again. You think so? But they're, you know, what are they? Let, let's check the standings here. They're not great, but like they also don't have a team Six. except for Jokic. Like he's yeah. like Murray's gone. Like they have nobody. Like it's just Jokic and like his merry band of miscreants running around. Like his brothers are more important to the team than the actual players they have on the floor. 
I think he would make me or you average 12 points per game. <laughs> he probably would. <laughs> he, he would hit our would. head. The, the ball would bounce from our head into the basket. Well, you know, um, no, I'm, uh, I'm fascinated by it. You know, like, uh, he's, he's doing great. So is Doncic. Um, both. Uh, were... Don't, don't talk to me. I had such high hopes for Luca, and he shows up fat, drinking all the sweet tea and the milkshakes but so, and stuff like I know, that. but yeah, I know. That was funny. That was funny. But no, but like both him and Jokic look out of shape. No, but, Jok- think- but Jokic, Jokic is just big boned. Like, like Luca has one job and he didn't do it. Like Jokic is at least running up and down the floor. I don't see him gassed, like keeled over. Like, yes, he gets like, he looks red in the face, but he yes. like literally he played for like 45 minutes in an overtime game that I watched. I know, I saw Pelican. that game. That and like in person, he, he looked, he didn't look tired. Like it looked like he was working hard, but like he never, like he never slowed down. Not even until the very end. Whereas like Luca, he's starting to come into form a little bit. But man, you have one job. Like Luke, like just like take care of your body, man. You've got the whole world by the. I don't know. I just can't. Well, I mean, look. I mean, uh, Dallas is fifth in the West. Um, they have you know the better record right now than the Nuggets. And you could argue Luca doesn't have much of a, a supporting cast either. So, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I just I, had a, listen, I had I'm just I'm just fascinating by uh, what you call big bone people doing well. <laughs> you know, as 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 a member of that tribe of big bone people, I'm just happy to see two dudes who are kind of doughy dominating the NBA. Just you know, it's awesome. <laughs> There's still hope for me. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, but listen, before we go, uh, hey. we'll ask you for this. So I'm um, I'm really happy. I'm coaching. Actually, my daughter's um, oh nice basketball team. Yeah, nice. yeah. So, any tips? Any tips? Any any drills I should pull out today? Uh, let me see. Um, well, how, how wait? How old is your daughter now? So they are seventh to eighth grade. Okay, so it's a little early to to get too tough. No, uh, no, what? No, not. No. What uh, what what is the toughest thing you had to do in basketball practice? Well, so I had a coach, and so I I played. You know, I went to a Jewish high school, Jewish basketball team. And the first three years, we got kind of upgraded into the Super League because apparently the year before I started, like they did really well. So we got upgraded to the Super League with all these teams. And I'm not I'm not exaggerating. We not only did we not win a game my first three years, we didn't lose by less than 40. I mean, like we were getting blown out of every single game. It was really disheartening. And then my senior year, they knocked us down to the lower level. And we had this coach, uh, shout out to Marlon Bankhead, um, flamingly gay black man super skinny, just like, like a real like attitude to him. And, um, his whole thing with, he, he wasn't X's and O's or anything. He was just like, I'm going to get these Jews into the best shape of their entire life. And we're going to run up and down the court and we're going to win every single game. And we did. And the one drill that he did that I, I literally killed over the first time we did it. And I got benched for a game or two because he thought I was completely incompetent because I couldn't do the drill was, and you can't do this for the girls team, obviously, but get a towel. Like he had us take off our shirts and you had to run a suicide except you were um, you had your shirt on the floor like you were wiping the floor with the shirt the entire time so you did the suicide with your, you were, with your leg with your hands uh, with your hands so you're like bent yeah. over and like like yeah. moving it up and doing it the whole time um it was so miserable and after you did it for a couple weeks like you were just running circles around everybody so i would say get your girls some towels and have them do the suicides on the that floor that was my actually this was my plan my plan was we're going to blitz all night and if they cross the line of scrimmage, I'm gonna take every last one of you out. That, that's my plan. You know, like remember the Titans, basically. So good. I like this. Towels are coming. Let me tell you that. 
I get so you're are you also gonna take them on a on a on a bus to Gettysburg and run them? Yes. No, I listen, I am gonna make them watch one practice, Rudy. You know, it's a Catholic school by the way, so like Rudy will do great. Yeah. Notre Dame, all that stuff. And uh but yeah, no, I actually coached uh my high school and my J V team and we came second uh oh. because of the various uh presses, zone presses I created for for that age group. So I it's, I mean, look, it was 22 years ago, whatever it was. So I'm looking forward to dusting off the playbook. All right. Well, when, when you need a consultant to come in, to just, just let me know. I'll hey, fly out. when you come and when you fly out to Santa Monica, let's do it. All right. I'm, cousin, I'm gonna... cousin Jacob, you, you're the assistant coach. <laughs> All right, Marco. It's always a pleasure, man. Thanks so much for the time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of The Perch Pod. If you haven't already, you can find us under the name The Perch Pod on every major streaming platform. Subscribe for downloads, follow us, all that good stuff. Uh, if you have feedback on this episode or on any episode, you can email us at info at perchperspectives.com. I can't promise that we'll reply to every single email that comes in, but I read every single one that comes in and I love hearing from listeners, so please don't be shy. Uh, you can find us on social media. Our Twitter handle is at Perchspectives because we love a good pun. Uh, we're also on LinkedIn under Perch Perspectives. Most importantly, please check out our website. It's www.perchperspectives.com. Besides being able to find out more information about the company, the services that we provide, and even to read samples of our work, you can also sign up for our twice a week newsletter on the most important political developments in the world. It's free. All you have to do is provide your email address. And even if you don't want to do that, you can read the post for free on our blog. Thanks again for listening. Please spread the word about Perch Perspectives and the Perch Pod, and we'll see you out there.